For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. Welcome here in the Lincoln Square Center and online. So we're going to have a practice commitment period starting April 2nd. And the Dharma aspect of that, uh, the text we'll be using, is the, the Malakirti Sutra, a wonderful, entertaining Mahayana text that um, talks about the great lay, awakened lay uh, practitioner from uh, Shakyamuni's time, the Malakirti. So what I want to talk today about today are lay adepts in Zen history uh, as background for the practice commitment period. And actually, the Malakirti, uh, there's no evidence that he was an historical person he only he, he appears only in one other text, I believe, um, in among, one other Mahayana text, just amongst a list of other bodhisattvas. But his the influence of the sutra in China and Japan was very strong, uh, and uh, in terms of supporting lay practitioners, so. For us at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, uh, we are basically a lay sangha, a non-residential uh, sangha. Uh, uh, many of the, uh, most of the ancient dragon priests and practice leaders have, uh, and others have gone and done some residential practice at Tassajara and Green Gulch. And that's an important. That is that's the background actually of Zen and the Zen that came to America. Uh, and that kind of practice is very helpful. However, um, our practice here in Chicago and with all our friends online in various places. I see Indiana and Ohio and New Mexico online. Uh, is about being in the world. Yes. We're having some audio problems. I'm going to try switching the audio to that laptop really quick. Okay. Good. Okay, uh, so I was saying that the, the practice, the Zen practice we received in America from Asia is, is basically received from monastic practice in China and Japan and East Asia and Korea. Um, and that kind of residential practice is important. And some of us here have done that, um, Tassajara or Green Gulch or elsewhere. Uh, but um, we are basically practicing in the world. So the Vimalakirti example, Vimalakirti is said to have been very immersed in all kinds of different realms in the world. And, uh, you know, we have a lay Sangha People, uh, wonderful people practicing regularly and engaged in 
the world, in Chicago and elsewhere, uh, we're looking for a new long-term temple building. And when we have that, there'll be rental spaces and hopefully um, ancient dragon practitioners will be renting there. But at this point, um, we, we're, we're practicing in a way like the Malakirti. Practicing in the world, immersed in the world. So, as I said, Vimalakirti is uh, there's no evidence that he was that he was an historical person, although he's very important in Chinese, Korean, Japanese Zen history as an example. But I wanted to mention today a few historical people who were uh, lay practitioners, or in some cases former monks who were practicing in the world. Just as examples. Um, so um, I'll, I'll start with Layman Pang, Pang Yun, um, very famous Chinese practitioner. And basically in the eighth century, his dates are 740 to 808. There will not be a test, but I just want to tell stories. So but Pang, Layman Pang was a historical person. He was a student of both Shito and Mazu, who were the two great teachers in that period. Uh, Shito is an ancestor in our lineage, Soto Zen. Uh, Mazu was an ancestor in the Linji or Rinzai lineage. But they sent students back and forth between them. Um, so Pang, Lehman Pang studied with both of them. And later on, we'll be chanting the Song of the Grass Hut by Shito which is related to this idea of lay practice. And I'm gonna talk about people who actually practiced in uh, thatched huts, uh, small huts. Um, so Lehman Pang, there are many, many, many stories about him. And I'm just gonna, I'm just really mentioning him briefly. Uh, um, he was a lay person in the world, uh, wealthy, merchant, uh, like Malakirti is said to have been. And Lehman Pang two or three times gave, a, gave away his, all of his fortune to feed homeless people, or, uh, destitute people, and then uh, regained it. Um, and he was a family man. <laughs> his pra- his um, bodhisattva practice was a family affair. Um, So Layman Pang, his wife, his son, and especially his daughter were also great bodhisattvas. And there are many stories about his daughter, Ling Zhao, who was actually the model for one of the 33 forms of kanon in China, the, the bodhisattva of compassion. Just one story about Ling, about Ling Zhao. One time, uh, Layman Pang stumbled and fell down on the ground. And Ling Zhao ran up and fell down next to him. And he said, what are you doing? And he said, I just came here to help you. So they fell together. I also want to mention someone in a story about Zhao Zhou, who was a little later than Layman Pang. Layman Pang died in 808. Zhao Zhou died in 897 after uh, 
and he's a historical person again. Uh, he was he it's documented that he lived for 120 years. But there's this, there are many stories, many, 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 many stories about Zhaozhou. Joshu is his name, as it's pronounced in Japanese. I'm just going to tell one uh, story. This is case 31 in the Mumon Khan and Gateless Barrier. It's case 10 in the Book of Serenity. Two uh, records of, of uh, encounter dialogues or Zen stories. So this one's about the woman of Taishan, Mount Tai or Butai, which is the uh, helm of Manjushri, who's on our altar, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, in northern China. Uh, so uh, whenever a monk uh, was going to Taishan, he would ask a woman who was on the road there, which way is the road to Taishan? And the woman would say, go right straight ahead. So there are many stories about, sometimes they're called Zen grannies, these uh, women who are living near monasteries, who sometimes they were tea sellers. Uh, usually they're described as older women, although there were young women who also who were, uh, who are mentioned in the records. Um, so the woman said, go, go right straight ahead. And whenever the monk had gone a few steps, she would say, a fine monk, so he goes. So one time a monk told Zhaozhou about this woman. Zhaozhou said, wait till I check, check out this woman for you. The next day, Zhaozhou went and asked her the same question. Which way is the road to Wutaishan? And the woman also answered the same way. Go right straight ahead. Jaja returned to his monastery and said to his group, I have checked out the woman of Taishan for you. So there's a lot that could be said about this story. Um, and some of the commentaries, including from Dogen, criticizes both Jaja and, and um, this woman. But uh, I'm mentioning her just as an example of the many... Um, uh, women practitioners and women masters, really, who in some cases reprimanded uh, the monks or put them in their place in so one way or another. But with very, very few exceptions, none of them are named. This is a, uh, a relic of Asian patriarchal culture. In the Vimalakirti Sutra, there's a goddess friend of Vimalakirti who lives with him in his house, who has a whole chapter in which she, well, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but um, it's, it's a really entertaining chapter. She uh, uh, ed educates the monk Shariputra uh, on gender fluidity and against gender discrimination. So uh, there are a number of stories like this in Zen lore. And uh, of course, you know, in this traditional Asian culture, it was very, very patriarchal. Um, you know, they, they don't record so many of the great women Zen teachers, some of them. Uh, and of course, now here in our American culture, 
women are being persecuted, especially by fascist politicians in Texas and Florida. And what they're doing is actually influencing the whole country, especially removing basic women's health care. But of course, women earn less than men for the same job still and so forth. Um, Anyway, these stories of women in in Zen lore. Um, uh, well, the one the one in the Vimalakirti Sutra especially uh, is again it speaks against gender discrimination. So we'll get to that in the practice period. I want to talk mainly today, though, about two historical figures from Japan: Tosui and Ryokan. And many of you have heard about Ryokan, maybe not so many about Tosui. He died in 1683. He was before Ryokan. Um, And we don't know so much about him. What we do know is in a tribute written by uh, Menzan Zuiho, who died in 1769, so a while after uh, Tosui. his tribute was written in 1749, but not published until the year before he died in 1768. And I, I want to, just want to mention Menzan Suiho because he's very, very important in Soto history. Uh, and um, there, is, there are some things in English about him, but he basically reformed Soto Zen in his time, along with his teacher Manzan and, and a few others who helped. But... Um, yeah, he he is really established modern day Soto Zen, and again he died in 1769. So Menzan Suiho is an important figure, but he had heard about this guy Tosui, so he wrote about him, and I, um, I, I'm just going to say a little bit about him from these stories from Menzan, which is our main source. So. Uh, 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 Tosui was uh, a monk from a very young age, age five, and he uh, became a brilliant uh, student and expressor, expressor um, exp- expounder of Zen teaching at a young age, 13 or 14. He eventually, uh, he, was in, he lived in Kyushu, the southern island, I think in Kumamoto area, where I did a practice period too. Um, anyway, he left his temple at the end of a practice period. And we don't really know what year or what, what his age was. Um, so there's a book about him called Letting Go. And he left, when he left the temple, suddenly, abruptly, at the at the end of a practice period, um, he left this poem. Today the retreat comes to an end. The assembly arrives to bid farewell, but the old monk has gone ahead. This old monk has gone ahead to the east, to the west, wherever the, his spirit leads. So he was uh, a true free spirit. He's considered in Japan to be uh, like the uh, first hippie. Uh, So he's described that way now. Um, Three of his disciples searched for him after he left, 
Um, a couple of them found him and he sent them away. He was uh, living like a layperson, scraggly hair and, you know, did not like a proper monk. And he uh, challenged them to, to uh, stay with him and they couldn't, they couldn't do what he was, his practice. Um, so he lived in the world for a long time. Uh, anonymous, mostly anonymously, but there, there are lots of there are stories about some of his disciples chasing him, trying to find him. Um, and he he did various kind of odd jobs. There's a section here. This book is this is from Letting Go, book uh, by Peter Haskell. Um, so the master traveled to Isa, where there's a great Shinto shrine, and he mingled with the beggars in the vicinity of the inner and outer shrines. He also spent time in Nagoya and in Nara, where he worked at such jobs as a sweeper at, at the Daibutsu, the, big, the great temple. So I don't know if any of you have been to Nara and seen this huge uh, temple, Todaiji, with the... Um, the largest bronze statue in the world uh, and the largest wooden building in the world. Um, and this is a, a statue of the Dharmakaya Buddha, Rojana Buddha. Anyway, so he just worked doing menial work there anonymously. Um, later, he hired on as a servant and even worked as a, a carrier, a porter carrying. Uh, so there, there was a, this kind of uh, carriage that people would get rides in on the back of these porters, and he did that. In Kyoto, it is said that he associated with pack horse drivers and the like. He would never remain a full year doing the same thing in any one place, but would move or move freely around, changing his location, his occupation, and his appearance. At, at some point, living in Otsu near Kyoto, he made sandals and straw horseshoes and would go out selling them every day. So he was known as the sandal maker. So he just was at the side of the road uh, selling sandals. And apparently they had straw horseshoes back then too. Um, later, his customers would come to place their orders and wait for them to be finished. People spoke of this, the old man of, his, of the old man of Otsu's shoes. Um, he rented a dwelling, a rented dwelling was a vacant space, no more than about seven square feet between two merchant houses. Uh, so he had a thatch roof over this, this little hut uh, and used the space only for sleeping. Didn't have any cooking utensils. Where he made the straw horseshoes and sandals uh, uh, and there and he would use the proceeds to buy rice cakes and such. So he spent two years doing this. Uh, so sometimes he's known as a sandal maker, but he was already transmitted Zen master. Um, so there's other there's other stories of him. There's stories of him, um, of some of his earlier disciples trying to find him, and occasionally coming across him. Um, there's one long story of a nun who was his, his disciple searching for him under the Gojo, the Fifth Street Bridge in, in Kyoto, amongst all the beggars. Um, 
and she found a le- so you know what we would call homeless people. She found a leper there under the Fifth Street Bridge, who Tosui was helping, offering, f- and she offered food and bedding to Tosui, uh, and he didn't. We refused it. She she and she offered him food and bed bedding and money at, because she was a, a, a disciple of his. Finally, he took them at her persuading and gave them all to the leper and the money he spread amongst the other homeless people. So there's all these, these, these kinds of stories about him. Um, various Dharma brothers looking for him, finding him amid the street, street people. And then after these meetings, he would move away somewhere else. Eventually, later in his life, a former student who was wealthier persuaded him to receive leftover rice that was going to be thrown away anyway, so he can make vinegar and sell it. So for a while, he was he called himself the vinegar maker, perfecting the way. So he was um, a street person, just uh, making a living for a while, making and selling sandals later on. Um, selling vinegar. Um, so uh, we don't know so much factually about him, uh, but there are these stories that Menzon collected in the 1600s. Um, so um, these characters in, in East Asian history are very relevant for us, um, even though we are a non-residential Laisanga, uh, maybe when we uh, find and purchase a building for a new, for a new temple, some of the uh, some of the spaces there will be rented by practitioners. I hope, and we will have uh, sangha members there. Um, so I want to mention Ryokan, who uh, lived 1758 to 1831. Again, there will not be a test. He was a well-trained monk. Um, and he also was a deeply studied Dogen, who uh, was not so well known even among Soto people in, the, in this period. Um, Ryokan was a real character. He supported himself by begging. He went after he left the monastery. He went uh, back to his hometown and lived a recluse, recluse life in a small uh, grass hut. Near, near his hometown. Uh, again, he supported himself by begging. He was also, in his own lifetime, a famous calligrapher. So he was a, a, an artist. A calligraphy is a high art in, in East Asia. Um, so there are a lot of stories about him. And he's known, even though he was a, a very learned student of Dogen and a very well-trained monk, he took the name Daigu, which means great fool. And he lived up to that name. So there are many stories about his foolishness. I'll just tell a few. Well, he used to play with children uh, in the, in around the town. He would be going out on bigger rounds and he'd put his ball down and just he carried some uh, balls in his in his sleeve and he would play ball with the with the children or other games. Uh, one story is he was uh, he got involved in a game of hide and seek, and he was hiding in a barn, and 
The next morning, the farmer came out and saw Ryokan and said, what are you doing there? And he said, shh, the children will hear. <laughs> so he was <laughs> a funny, foolish guy. Um, there's um, there are also very touching stories about his wisdom. So I'm going to tell some of these stories from... And some of and he was also a great poet, so I'll talk about some of his poetry, but sorry for the sound of paper wrestling. Um, so he once so he, he was living in his hometown, uh, or outside his hometown. His brother became his younger brother became the uh, head of the town. Um, so this is a story about his nephew. So um, his brother's wife uh, asked Ryokan to please help with her son, who had become a kind of a, I guess we call him today a juvenile delinquent, or he was getting into trouble. Um, and she asked, asked Ryokan to come and talk with him. So Ryokan stayed in their home uh, for a few days didn't say anything to the nephew. And uh, he, was, he was spending lots of money gambling and things like that. Anyway, the, the son. Uh, so uh, Ryokan didn't say anything, but as he was getting ready to leave, he asked the son to come help him strap up his, his uh, sandals. So the so on begging rounds there are these straw sandals that one wears and they they have uh, long uh, straw things that you can wrap around your legs. It's a it's uh, I ended up finding finding them very comfortable when I when I did takuhatsu or begging rounds in in, in the monastery in, near the monastery in Japan. But uh, they're difficult at first. Anyway, he asked the son to the, ne- the nephew his nephew to come and help him. Um, asked him to tie the strings of his straw sandals. Um, his, the, his mother was standing by watching, hoping Ryokan would give him some strong advice. Uh, and then the nephew didn't understand why Ryokan had asked him to, to help with his sandals. Ryokan didn't say a thing. But as the nephew bent to his task, he felt something wet on his neck. He was surprised and looked up and he saw Ryokan's eyes full of tears. At that moment, the nephew felt repentance for his wrongdoings. Ryokan stood up and left without a word and the sun totally performed. So there's stories like that. There's also uh, oh, other foolish stories. One time, uh, an old friend was visiting Ryokan in his, uh, in his uh, straw hut, and Ryokan said, oh, I'll go out and get some sake for us to drink. And the guest waited and waited and wondered what had happened to Ryokan. Finally, he went down the hill from his hut 
and just a little bit below the hut, he saw Ryokan just sitting there, gazing at the moon. And then reminded him, and Ryokan ran off to get sake. So um, Ryokan was also a very famous, you know, as well as being a great fool, he was a very famous poet and is still revered in Japan. And again, this is a guy who had done monastic training, but then just went off to uh, live this very modest life. So I'm going to read a number of poems by Ryokan just because they're lovely. Here's a couple that I translated with Kaz Tanahashi. Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A past robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone, I hike with a deer. Cheerfully, I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. So if anyone wants me to repeat any of these, just let me know. Can you do that one again? We want that one again? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without desire, everything is sufficient. Basic Buddhist teaching. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A past robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone, I hike with a deer. Cheerfully, I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. Here's another one. All my life, too lackadaisical to stand up for myself. Buoyantly, I leave everything to the harmony of reality. In my sack, three scoops of rice. Beside the fire, a bundle of firewood. Who would ask about traces of delusion and enlightenment? How could you know the dusts of name and gain? Evening rain. In my thatched hut, I casually stretch out my legs. And I'll read some more from uh, Kostana. There's, there's numbers of books with wonderful stories and poems about Ryokan. Um, I'll read some poems from uh, Kostana Hashi's book about Ryokan, Sky Above Great Wind. Before listening to the way, Do not fail to wash your ears. Otherwise, it will be impossible to listen clearly. What is washing your ears? Do not hold on to your view. If you cling to it even a little bit, you will lose your way. What is similar to you but wrong, you regard as right. What is different from you but right, you regard as wrong. You begin with ideas of right and wrong. And the way is not so. Seeking answers with closed ears is like trying to touch the ocean bottom with a pole. So we don't have um, little cups of water uh, by each seat to literally wash your ears, but just get, you know, let go, let go, let go of your ideas. 
another one, shorter one. 1,000 peaks merge with frozen clouds. 10,000 paths have no human trace. Day by day, facing the wall. At times, I hear snow drift over the window. So this is an experience we could have had in the last day as sitting facing the wall as we had light snowfall. So there's so many of these, and uh, they're all good. But uh, I'm just I just selected a few. Past has passed away. Future has not arrived. Present does not remain. Right. <laughs> Nothing is reliable. Everything must change. You hold on to letters and names in vain, forcing yourself to believe in them. Stop chasing new knowledge. Leave old views behind. Study the essential and then see through it. When there is nothing left to see through, then you will know your mistaken views. And again, anybody who wants me to repeat one of these. Would you read that one again, please? Sure. Past has passed away. Future has not arrived. Present does not remain. Nothing is reliable. Everything must change. You hold on to letters and names in vain, forcing yourself to believe in them. Stop chasing new knowledge. Leave old views behind. Study the essential and then see through it. When there is nothing left to see through, then you will know your mistaken views. Couple more. And this is this great Zen fool, Ryokan, who left the monastery and lived in a grass hut. On a quiet evening in my thatch roofed hut, alone, I play a lute with no string. Its melody enters wind and cloud, mingles deeply with the flowing stream, fills out the dark valley, blows through the vast forest, then disappears. Other than those who hear emptiness, who will capture this rare sound? Could you repeat that, please? Sure. On a quiet evening in my thatch-roofed hut, alone, I play a lute with no string. And this references to that lute with no string in a number of koans. Its melody enters wind and cloud, mingles deeply with a flowing stream, fills out the dark valley, blows through the vast forest, then disappears. Other than those who hear emptiness, who will capture this rare sound? And I'll read one more, it's short. How could we dis this one? Yeah, how could we discuss this and that without knowing the whole world is reflected in a single pearl? So there's a Dogen essay, one bright pearl, 
I'll read this one again. How could we discuss this and that without knowing the whole world is reflected in a single pearl? So um, I'm, ju- I'm just sharing uh, in honor of the Malakirti and our upcoming practice period, a number of stories of great um, lay practitioners. Some of them had trained in monasteries before, but they just went off and lived in the world. Um, I want to close, and then we can have responses and discussion and so forth. But I want to close with a movie recommendation. And I think I saw Nicholas online. Is, he, is Nicholas still there? Yes. Oh, good. Um, yeah, Nicholas had mentioned this in a, uh, I think, in a Friday morning or Thursday morning discussion. Uh, and this movie is called Living. It's with Bill Nye, who's nominated for Best Actor in the Oscars tonight. Uh, it's, the movie is called Living. It's set in England. It's I don't want to say too much about it, but it starts off with a kind of Kafkaesque world where Bill Nye is head of a group of um, bureaucrats. And this movie is uh, based on a famous movie in Japan called Ikiru, which means to live by Akira Kurosawa. So this is a Bodhisattva movie. Um, uh, It was Suzuki Roshi's favorite movie, Ikiru. And living with Bill Nye is really good too. So... um, So, uh, again, um, talking about the examples for us of uh, lay practitioners, lay bodhisattvas in Asian history, uh, inspired, uh, some of them literally inspired by um, this sutra on Vimalakirti that we will be studying in the upcoming practice period in April and May. But these are just examples of, uh, and there are many, many others, actually. These are not the only ones by any means. There are other examples of Japanese um, Zen people who left the monastery and ended up doing things like selling, well, like like Tosui selling sandals or vinegar by the side of the road and uh, helping people. Like he, like Tosui helped the, the leper, or just playing with children like Ryoko. And again, this is um, a good, you know, this is something for us to consider. Given that ancient dragon Zen gate is a, a lay sangha, non-residential sangha, um, coming out of a monastic tradition in China and Japan, and now in California. So, again, uh, as I said at the beginning. Some of the people in this room have practiced at Tassajara Monastery, where I lived for a few years, or at Green Gulch Farm, where I also lived. Um, there are three-week uh, intensive practice per- periods at Green Gulch in January for people who can manage to get away then. Dylan just came back from one, as did Ruben. Uh, so uh, we practice in the world, in the world of Chicago or wherever 
Again, I see people online from Ohio and California and New Mexico and uh, Nicholas is in Indiana. So how do we share this teaching and this practice with all beings? This is our challenge. Uh, even as we live in the middle of this big city, people here in this room anyway, and some of the people online. So uh, maybe that's enough for me to say. Um, and I, um, we will be considering all this in the with the various teachings from the Malakirti, some of them uh, rather amazing and even humorous. That'll be in the practice period in April and May. But for today, uh, any responses or questions, or if you want to share other movie recommendations, that's fine too. <laughs> so, Yosan. Yes, good morning. <coughs> Hi. Do you mind if I chase that? It's one more time. What? Choosing the audio. So oh. Yes. In the room. And people, and people online also are welcome to. So, yes, I uh, just, um, I mean, I have a real interest in these kinds of figures, you know, later we're going to chant the Song of the Grass Hut, and, and these people always strike me as not stuck outside, inside, or in between in a very particular kind of way, <clears throat> and um, I just, w- just want to note that, excuse me, my ear is a little, um, I just want to note that um, we, there, you've brought, you've raised a number of historical figures, but uh, these people are still in the world. Yeah. Um, when I traveled in Korea with a former teacher, we encountered many such people. And maybe you know, I read a book some years ago, which I've forgotten about. I gave it away, and uh, uh, it was uh, about a man. I believe he was a student of Sawaki Kodo, and he was known for. He lived for years in a kind of a shabby boarding house. And he had a piece of um, cardboard. He'd take it out to Ueno Park. And he would just spend all his time there. Um, and he was known for two things. One, he, he could pluck a piece of grass. And, uh, I mean, some of us can probably do this and, you know, make a, make a sound. This guy could play tunes. And he would play tunes for people. And people would give him coins. And then he was also a very accomplished uh, calligrapher. Uh-huh. And would do calligraphy people. I, maybe you you recall his name is post-war, like fifties. Yeah, there's a book uh, by Arthur Braverman about some of the Sawaki uh, Energyama uh, uh, teachers, and I, I think he's in there, but I forget the name of the book. Mm-hmm. Where, where did he live? Uh, in Tokyo. Ueno Park is a big park in Tokyo. 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 Yeah. Yes. So um, there are still people like this. And, uh, you know, the point is how to take on Bodhisattva practice uh, without being in, being in a monastic residential practice sense, center. Uh, having some experience of those is very, very helpful. And again, uh, when we get our new temple, maybe there'll be a two or three spaces for people to practice and live there. Um, but um, basically, we're out in the world, <laughs> like Ryokan or like this fellow. Yeah, so there are many examples of this. And, and not just necessarily Buddhist practitioners, but 
people out in the world helping uh, homeless people like Tosui do. Other comments, questions, responses, movie recommendations, or whatever. I don't. It's an it's a, um, album recommendation. Um, it's, it's called um, Dose Your Dreams. It's a psychedelic punk album okay. that has been really influential on me. It came out like 2018. Um, and it, it's like a concept album. And the narrative is, um, is loosely that there's this guy that's working in an office job that he, I think he gets fired or he quits in like the first song and he falls or jumps out the window and lands like of the, of the office building that he's in and lands in kind of like a trash heap where there's this woman who's, who's living there or he's hanging out there named Joyce. And the, the whole concept is kind of loosely like uh, um, influenced by Ulysses by James Joyce. Mm. So her name is Joyce and she's an old uh, older older woman who is a, um, a suffragette or a woman's rights activist who now is like a street person and he has a very like transformative experience of just hanging out with this woman who kind of recalibrates the way that he looks at the world um, and uh, and so it's 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 uh, it's had a big influence on me and the ending suite of the album has these amazing songs called Love is an Island in the Sea and Joy Stops Time. Um, so it's it's been a really important record for like dealing with this stage of capitalism, basically, um, and where where what how meaning works basically now in America. Um, so could you say the name of the of the group and the album again? I, I could. The name of the group is an expletive. So, um, oh. <laughs> so the name of the group is fucked up, and again, the um, <laughs> the album is called uh, "Dose Your Dreams." Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I really recommend it. Other comments online or in the room? Uh, yes, Asia. Oh, thank you for a nice talk with wonderful poems and um, and stories. And I think. Um, I just agreed to give a talk on mindfulness meditation to some law students. And uh, I've been thinking about that and your talk really kind of inspired in me um, sort of a deeper thought about um, the the value of doing nothing and (laughs) the ways that we don't value that in our culture. I mean, it's, it's just endemic not to value that. And it doesn't mean that we have to, you know, give up everything we have and, and beg on the street, but although although that is an option, um, can we bring, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's um, more possible and still just as worthwhile, if not maybe more so worthwhile to bring that, spirit to what we do yes not to as some of Rokan's poems say not to not to um, you know enforce your views or uh, rush around basically uh, it's easy to become too busy in this world and there's a, a famous story in our tradition about um, uh, a brother telling his brother monk 
you should know there's one who's not busy. <laughs> so even when we're very actively engaged, um, yeah. And you might consult. We have at least a couple lawyers in our sangha, a couple of attorneys. I'm not sure if any of them are here now. Uh, maybe not. But uh, yeah, you might consult with them too. Thank you. How do we, just in the course of events in our life, how do we find ways to be helpful? And then, again, it doesn't mean giving away all your money. It's not better living uh, as a homeless person, although it might. But how do we, just in the world, do things? Yes. Uh, well, I was just wondering, like the people that you're talking about, um, I was wondering if any of them have patrons. And if that changes what you're doing, if you have a patron, um, I mean, I guess I think a little bit of the, the model of the, um, you know, the online Patreon thing where you can support an artist. Um, yeah. Anyway, but does it make a difference if somebody is helping your practice and you're not just supporting yourself um, selling vinegar? Well, yeah, there are lots of stories of of uh, uh, monks and practitioners uh, who did have patrons. Uh, the point isn't to seek for fame or wealth. Those are poisons. This is throughout Buddhist teaching. And, you know, Dogen had a, uh, a samurai student who was wealthy and who was lived up in Northern Japan, uh, Fukui was, was an Echizen who helped him build a Heiji. Um, was a one-eyed samurai, um, so I feel some affinity. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the point is, do you, and, and there's a story about Dogen going to the capital, being summoned to go to the capital of Kamakura to meet with the shogun, and he spent, I don't know, six or eight months there. And when he came back, he apologized to the monks in his monastery. He said, I didn't tell, teach them anything that I haven't taught. So, yeah, that's an important question. Thank you, Peter. Yes, hi. Hi. Uh, my name is Salama. I'm new here today. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I'm thinking about... Um, um, I'm studying to be a chaplain and, and, um, and I'm thinking about inner chaplaincy and outer chaplaincy. Uh, and I've been in a lot of my own grief work, I guess you could say. And, um, you know, sometimes I just feel like all I do is spend my days projecting my own stuff all over the world. Um, my anger, my fear. Uh, and I also know that there's no like, perfection uh and then you sort of act uh so uh i didn't plan what i was going to say i don't know <laughs> so so first yes, thank, thank you for your for your talk too thank you for being here <laughs> yeah 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 that's a, uh, so actually we have in our sangha i think maybe a dozen chaplains so it's it's a very good um bodhisattva job and it's very challenging 
and we've had a number of, I don't think any of them are here right now. But um, anyway, um, yeah, it's good, right, livelihood. And there are other people here who are helping in various ways as psychologists or teachers or, you know, we have a number of grade school teachers um, also. So, um, yeah, the point isn't to, you know, live in some, to try and seek out some little cardboard or that grass-roofed hut. Uh, Some people have done that. Some people still do that, as Nyazan mentioned. But how do we be in the world in a way that is helpful, in the, in the same way that Fimalakirti was helpful, or that uh, Rokan was helpful, or that uh, uh, Tozui was helpful. So um, this, this is the challenge of our practice. And there are all kinds of vocations that one can have that, um, in which one does that. So thank you very much for joining our our ancient dragon chaplain squad. Tell me your name again. Salama. Salama. That's okay. Thank you. Please come again. Other comments or questions or music or movie recommendations or just other responses to any of this. Well, thank you all very much, whether um, here in Arzendo in Lincoln Square or uh, online joining us through Zoom. Good to see you all.